0: The JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right, looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month. For $5 per episode, I'll shout you out on this show, and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JST exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business? You want me to talk about it? I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio patreon.com slash jsc radio and you can truly help this become the people's podcast this is jsc radio
1: Check it out. This
0: is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, how the hell is everyone doing? My name is J. Scott Smith, and this is the 39th episode of the People's Podcast. This is J. S. C. Radio! Hey now! Welcome, my friends, to the podcast that never ends, but might take a couple of weeks to get out because of my crazy-ass schedule. Hope everyone's doing quite all right out here. we crossed into the month of May now. I appreciate all the support I've been getting on jscottsmith.com. That's right, jscottsmith.com. You're likely listening to this show or at least part of this show right now on my new updated website, jscottsmith.com. Got to say it three times. That's how you're training radio. jscottsmith.com. I'll say it another time if I have to. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on Google Play, all these places you can get JSC Radio Plus. You can get at me on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com/slash JSC Radio. So it's been a second since I've been here. Been a couple of weeks. I warned you at the end of episode 38 that there was a pretty good chance I wouldn't have been here last week because of the NFL Draft, as you heard there in the intro. So yes, we're going to be talking about my experience at the NFL Draft, what it was like with it being out here in Philadelphia. How much fun it was to be out there. It was surprisingly a pretty cool scene out there at the Benjamin Franklin Parkway here in Philadelphia for the NFL Draft. Plus, and I would be obviously derelict in my duties if on the second half of this show, yes, it's going to be a two-parter. We're getting back to the, to the traditional two-part formula of this thing. I am obviously going to address Boston being exposed. Not really exposed because we already knew what Boston was, but Boston's ugly racist head rearing itself once again this week by going after Adam Jones of the Baltimore Orioles and as it turns out shining a big old spotlight on what has been happening in Boston as long as they've been playing sports and even before that but first things first man you're messing with the worst it's time to talk about the NFL draft honestly it was if I'm going to rank Some of the major things I've covered and been a part of. Yes, I'm going to have a little swagger and talk about some of the things I've actually covered. And I've covered a myriad of college basketball and football games. I've covered a myriad of high school basketball and football and baseball and softball games. I've covered major events. Covered an NCAA Division II tournament. I've covered Major League Baseball playoffs. I've done NBA games, NFL games. I covered a World Series and a Division Series and an American League Championship Series. Hell, I covered the Democratic National Convention. Where would I slot the NFL Draft in all that? It's not on the World Series level, partially because, you know, Tigers were involved in that, but it's a pretty big deal. And I didn't think that the NFL Draft would have that kind of energy and that kind of vibe. Because those of you who saw it on TV, whether it was on the NFL Network or whether you saw it on ESPN. And a quick word, by the way, to that. Much love to the people I know at ESPN, the ones who kept their jobs and the ones who lost their jobs. My good friend Adrian Lawrence, who appeared on this show on episode 20, she's still there. She kept her gig. But it was a rough go of it. When I'm at the draft. I'm at the draft on that Wednesday. We're doing media interviews. And the word of the of the layoffs, the firings, was just coming through rapid rapid fire. And the ESPN people were shook. I mean, shook daddy. They were not feeling it as they shouldn't. It was brutal. So, yeah, I want to shout out to the people at ESPN while I got the chance right now. But, yeah, whether you saw the draft on ESPN or the NFL Network, it doesn't quite give you an idea of the scope of how big this thing was. And those of you who follow me on Instagram, by the way, at J Scott Smith, I'm on Twitter. Actually, we're on Twitter in two places. I'm on Twitter at my own personal page at J Scott Smith, where I am verified original. And the show is now on Twitter at JSC Radio. And I sent out pictures on my Instagram from the draft. So you can see this, and I was out there. I was on the I was on the the red carpet, and that was a really dope scene. And Being out in the crowd, I was in the midst of the fans out there. And when I tell you that I saw people from every possible NFL city, you name the team, I saw the jersey. In Philadelphia, I'm seeing people in everything from Giants gear Plenty of cowboy gear, and I'll get to that in a second. Plenty of cowboy gear, seeing people out there, and obviously Eagle jerseys. I saw Bears jerseys, Vikings jerseys. I saw Seahawks gear, Arizona Cardinal gear, 49ers. I saw a guy who's from Pennsylvania wearing a Miami Dolphin jersey. I've seen Carolina Panthers. I've seen Washington. We don't need to say what the name of that team is. You know what I'm referring to. I even ran into a Detroit Lion fan. A Detroit Lion fan who was from Philadelphia. Dude has been a Lion fan since Barry Sanders, so he's been struggling with us for 20 years. None but respect there. You name Buffalo Bills. There's a Buffalo Bill fan running around in a full Bills uniform with the shoulder pads out there. It's like the It's like the cantina scene in Star Wars. When you're walking through there and seeing all these people from all these different places and they're in the streets and it was a cool scene, to be honest. The vibe was really cool. It was hot, by the way, last week. Like unusually hot for April. Like 85 degrees in late April in Philadelphia. It gets hot. But damn it, it don't normally get that hot this time of year in Philadelphia. So it felt like midsummer. And I had to go on a long walk because the way this city is set up, Obviously, if you live on the East Coast, you understand there's mass transit. My Midwestern ass, or should I say my Detroit ass, because in the Midwest we do have mass transit. We just don't have it in Detroit. We're not used to that sort of thing out there. get here, you can park in one place and then take the train someplace else. And you're good to go. You can take the subway. But out in Philadelphia, I had to take the subway to 15th and then make the walk to 22nd in the midst of all those people and that heat Carrying a backpack and a recorder, and thankfully I wore my my walking shoes. I brought my working shoes that particular day, and I was able to get out there and sweat it off a bunch. I have one of those step counters on my iPhone here, and I looked down a couple days later, and can't believe it. I looked down. That some bitch said I walked 5.2 miles. Are you kidding me? 5.2 miles, and the majority of it was during the draft. And the way the draft was set up, it was at the Philadelphia Art Museum, home of the world famous Rocky Steps, the Rocky statue, which is where the big stage was built and the draft was actually held. The whole time I was there, it was honestly just something that was magnificent, to see it. Again, it's not the biggest event I've been a part of, but it was one of the cooler ones. And I can say that. And there's a lot that happened there. The day before, I got to interview Steve Mariucci, the former Lions and 49er head coach. Got to interview Steve Smith, The recently retired Baltimore Ravens slash Carolina Panther. Talked to Mike Mayock and Brian Billick. It it was on some big timer type of shit, man. It was cool. Love that. When you think about events like the NFL draft, and there's always these things that stick out. There's always these moments. I covered the first night of the draft top to bottom. I was there in person. It was amazing. It was. It, it's interesting seeing it live and being there. Because you remember for all those years, the draft was held at either Radio City Music Hall or the Paramount Theater or Madison Square Garden or something like that. Last year was the first time they'd taken it on the road in 50 years ago to Chicago. And then this year it's here in Philadelphia. And just to be a part of that and to see that kind of a crowd. Because this is the biggest crowd ever. The NFL was talking about 100,000 people were down there last Thursday, a week ago. And I can honestly say they were right. It was thick. It was real thick, but the people were super cool. But as you heard in the intro, the one person they were not—they—they—they they, they were not very pleased to see was Roger Goodell. I mean, the boo birds were definitely out on Roger, and he earned them. He definitely earned them. But the funny thing about it is, it's that it wasn't just simply Roger Goodell getting up there and getting booed out of the building every single time. You heard it. Roger Goodell was welcoming the boos. He's reveling in them. Listen to this again.
1: Good evening and welcome to the NFL draft. Come on, Philly, come on. There you
0: go. Roger was out here going full heel. And as such, he decided to revel in the moment. Prior to the Eagles pick, They're playing the Rocky theme, which pretty much is the same as playing Nuck if you buck in the hood. You play the Rocky theme in front of a large gathering of people in Philadelphia, the place is going to start going crazy. And as they're playing the Rocky theme, getting ready for the Eagle pick, and they're showing all the Eagles highlights from last year and videos from Eagles history, Then as the song reaches its crescendo, here comes Roger Goodell, and the whole place just boos him. It might as well had been Roman Reigns just walking out there and getting booed. That's Roger Goodell. But that night, that night of the first round, Takarist McKinley, and I've got to say this, parents, why would you do that to the boy? Why would you give a kid a name like that? His last name's McKinley, like the president. Takarist, T-A-K-K-A-R-I-S-T. Why would you do that to him? I don't give a damn what any of you think of me saying this. You gonna give a dude a name like that. He better be an NFL draft pick, or he better have a jumper. They call him Tack for short. And Tack was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, and he was fired up. And he comes onto the stage with a big picture of his late grandmother, really touching stuff to receive his hat, shake hands with Roger Goodell. He comes out there, gets love from a Philly crowd that pretty much at that point had largely checked out once the Eagles made their pick but they should have stuck around because Mr. McKinley cut an all-time, fired up, babyface promo after he got drafted. Here he is talking to the NFL Network's Deion Sanders.
1: UCLA, who I've known for about 30 That's years. What we're doing and for her, man. said he was gonna... Made a promise to That's her, her and I stuck to her.
2: It. I made that promise, man. I told her. Before she passed away, I was gonna live my dream. I was gonna go D1. I was gonna get out of Richmond. I was gonna get out of Oakland. I was gonna go to the NFL. I made that promise to her, man. 30 seconds later, she passed away. And this is what I do it for. This is what I do it for, man. Come on, man. God damn. Get to the damn quarterback. Yo, get to the quarterback. The emotions build up inside of you right now for your grandmother. It means everything, man. It means everything. I made a promise to her. Like I said, I was gonna go D1. I was gonna Richmond. I was gonna Oakland. I was gonna live my dreams, play the NFL. And I'm here, man. I completed the promise. That means every fucking thing to me. Excuse my language. Man, find me later, man. Find me later, man. This means everything to me. Everything to me, man. I want you to do something for me. I love your passion. I love your intensity. But let's harness it and channel it in the right direction. Because if you can do that, ain't nothing can stop you. We did it, man. Yes, sir. Thank you. We did it. I love you, Grandma. It's only beginning. Yes. God bless you, man. Thank
3: you. So, just, just know this. The, the booing is because the Dallas Cowboys were just announced to have been on the clock.
0: Thankfully, the NFL has already said... They will not fine young McKinley for this, nor should they. Embrace it. That's passion right there. Yeah, he dropped an F-bomb on the NFL network. It's cable TV. Technically, on cable TV, you can say whatever the you want. So let the dude say it. What's the big deal? He didn't get fined. He was emotional. He was happy, and he deserved it. There ain't too many Atlanta Falcons I care for. Go back to listen to episode 30. People in Atlanta ain't too fond of me. If there were ever an Atlanta Falcon that I was going to get behind, it's young Tack McKinley. That's a good brother, and he's overcome a lot, and he deserved it. You can't help but feel good for a cat like him. Silly name aside. The other funny moment, at least for me, second night of the draft, Friday night, second round, came time for the Dallas Cowboys pick. Now, of course, obviously, whenever it was time for Dallas or the Giants or Washington to pick, that first night, the Boo Birds were out in full force, as they should be. The second night of the draft, Goodell doesn't make the picks. Representatives of the different teams, either former players or people from the community where the team is or something like that. Like a couple years ago, Barry Sanders, for example, comes out and does the Detroit Lions pick. They decided when it came time for the Cowboys on Friday night that they're going to send former wide receiver Drew Pearson, who won a Super Bowl with the Cowboys back in the 1970s. Drew Pearson, getting his marching orders from Roger Goodell, comes out there and gives one of the best heel promos you're going to hear. Remember, this is a legendary Dallas Cowboy walking right into the Hornets' nest out here in Philadelphia, and he's dropping these bombs on the Eagle fans.
1: To the Dallas Cowboy selection, please welcome the University of Tulsa wide receiver Drew Pearson. want to thank the Eagle fans for allowing me to have a career in the NFL. Thank you. I am honored as an undrafted free agent to be selected to make the Cowboys second round draft pick and on behalf of the five-time World
0: But, man, Drew Pearson went out there and showed that he apparently missed his calling. That was some high-quality pro wrestling heel work. He, and I'm talking about he generated that old-school NWA heat, like back in the 70s and the early 80s when Ric Flair would go out there and cut one of those promos, and he might have to fight his way to the back. That That, that type of thing. That's what I'm talking about. Plus, he managed to get heat on the kid he was drafting. Are you kidding me? Every time that kid's name gets mentioned from here on out in Philadelphia, he's going to get booed. And meanwhile, Roger Goodell was in the back just egging him on like Vince McMahon to go get under Philly's skin. Incredible. Anybody who knows me knows I can't stand the Dallas Cowboys. But man, I love me some heel Drew Pearson, baby. The draft was something else. It was. It was hot. I'll definitely say that. And speaking of hot, let me put it like this. I would rather be stranded on the Ben Franklin Parkway for years on end. I'd rather be stranded on the Ben Franklin Parkway than stranded on a desert island with Ja Rule. I know y'all heard about this damn fire festival. I started seeing the hashtags about this thing cropping up while I was in the midst of doing my draft stuff last week. I didn't know what the hell anybody was talking about. I was too busy trying to get everything done. So finally over the weekend, on Saturday, when I finally was able to unwind. Because by the way, I got all of about six hours of sleep between Wednesday morning and Friday afternoon. So you you wondering what kind of a mood I was in? Just know I was a salty dog by about 11 a.m. on Friday. I was not in the best place. I'm seeing this stuff about this fire festival, and I'm like, what the hell is a fire festival? What, what the hell are you talking about? Because I'm not as tuned in to what the kiddies are into in terms of music and festivals and all that, because apparently, I didn't know Coachella was a thing until two, three years ago, and I got a bunch of smarmy douchebags acting like, ugh, how do you not know about Coachella? Because, you know, I'm a grown-up, and I have shit to do. So... Pardon me if I don't know what the f- Coachella is, and clearly I don't know what the hell the Fire Festival was. And apparently, it didn't matter because the Fire Festival was a total shit show, and it was of the best variety. When I finally learned what it was, that it was a festival launched by some entrepreneur, some tech guy named Billy McFarlane, which, by the way, just when you hear the name Billy McFarlane, Doesn't that set off the scam artist whistles blowing in your head? A dude named Billy McFarlane is not a tech entrepreneur. A dude named Billy McFarlane is the type of guy to try to set you up on a Ponzi scheme. He's the type of guy who wants you to pay $500. He's the kind of guy who wants to turn $20 into $2,000. That's Billy McFarlane. Well, somehow the fire Festival was supposed to be this lavish, once in a lifetime music extravaganza, which is going to be held on a private island that supposedly was owned by Pablo Escobar. Yes, because I want to go to an island in the Bahamas that I've never heard of that was owned by a drug lord. Good God. The tickets for this, for this, whatever the hell this was supposed to be, ran in the hundreds of dollars to several thousand dollars to as much as 200. $50,000, a quarter million dollars. A quarter milli. Do you know what I could do with a quarter million dollars? I'll tell you one thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to pay it to go sit on an island to go see a music festival sponsored by some dude named Billy McFarlane and his business partner, Ja Rule. Ja Rule! I didn't even realize Ja Rule was still alive! The whole thing promised amenities such as villa-style housing, gourmet catering, beach yoga, hey now, bikini-clad models, hey, aboard rented jet skis and yachts. And of course, the craziest thing is, they were going to offer up a real-life treasure hunt. They were going to have you out here like Jack Sparrow at the damn fire festival, where you could win $1 million in luxury jewelry and watches and cold, hard cash plus oceanfront property. How the hell could this possibly be a scam? How could it possibly go wrong? Are you kidding me? This thing apparently was first pitched in 2015, or at least it started to come together in 2015 when McFarland met Ja Rule. And I'm pulling some of this info from Spin Magazine because I'm still trying to figure this crap out. He he started some social clubs. Somehow along the way, ran into Ja Rule and became a spokesperson for this thing. It's called Magnuses. Magnuses. And Ja Rule was a spokesperson. If that's the biggest name you can get to speak for your company, and at that point, 2015, there's a problem, bruh. McFarlane and Ja Rule co-found a new venture called FIRE. It was supposed to be an app for booking celebrity appearances and the festival. So now we fast forward to December of last year, which you could probably excuse a lot of us if, you know, in December of last year, we were kind of fretting other things. Festival organizers invited all these influencers, and we're including models and athletes and DJs and producers, and one of the Kardashians is there. They started creating these videos and hyping this whole thing up. I mean, and by the way, Kendall Jenner, one of those Kardashians, was paid a quarter million dollars for her endorsement, while other ones got $10,000 to just simply post about it. Just post. And most of these people were not disclosing that they were getting paid to do this, which possibly violated FTC regulations. This just keeps getting better. And the and FIRE had actually held a concert, too. They'd held their first event in the Bahamas, a disaster relief benefit concert Featuring Ja Rule. I'm sure that thing made a whole hell of a lot of money. So they shot a reality show about the festival. They were offering, quote, limited tickets with a 25% discount of the damn thing. But by the time we got to early April, it was already starting to fall apart. You get to February and March, there's try- they're still trying to get the logistics taken care of. So two months out of this thing, you don't have such things as toilets and showers. Those houses that they were talking about building on the island, they ain't there. The trailers alone, the actual trailers, not movie trailer, physical trailers alone, $1 million. McFarland somehow is able to get a $5 million high-interest loan to cover the expenses. They keep giving this scam artist money. I'm apparently in the wrong line of work. How can I get people to give me $5 million to cover a bunch of bullshit that I never had any intention of going through with? By April 2nd, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that some of the performers, by the way, I didn't list some of the performers. We're talking about Blink-182 and Migos. They're supposed to be there. Not sure who else is going to be there. Doesn't matter. Damn thing was eventually going to fall apart anyway. But some of the performers didn't receive the money promised in their contracts. And ticket holders were nervous about the lack of communications regarding travel arrangements. This already starts to get better. By, by the time we get to last weekend, last Thursday, just before it's supposed to begin, Blink-182 pulled out of the concert, saying they weren't confident that they would have what they need to perform, you know, like a stage. And that evening, a lot of these simpletons who paid all that money to go to this bullshit festival started showing up in the Bahamas via chartered planes from Miami. Instead of the luxury villas and the gourmet catering, they found an unfinished gravel lot and scattered disaster relief tents, and a skeleton staff, and infamously, cheese sandwiches. That was your catered food. Cheese effing sandwiches. I can go to my kitchen and make cheese sandwiches. I ain't got to fly my ass down to the Bahamas to eat a damn grilled cheese sandwich. Hell, the ones I make would probably be better anyway. The dinner that the Fire Festival promised was catered by Steven Starr, is literally bread, cheese, and salad with dressing. So at least you got a salad out of the deal, bucko. Later that night, the Bahamian officials canceled all inbound flights, setting off chaos as many attendees decided to turn around and it overwhelmed that tiny little airport on the Exumas. By Friday morning, fire reverses course and says that the festival is, quote, postponed and everybody who showed up has got to get the hell out of there. It's unbelievable. Ja Rule even issued an apology claiming it was not a scam, but notes it's not his fault, yet he takes the blame for it. But he did kind of take the time to eliminate any and all Fire Festival references from his Instagram. And more reports started to surface that the Fire staff was leaking information to the media. There's a bunch of great stories on this. I suggest you Google this. Here's the whole thing. McFarlane goes into damage control saying that the organizers him, were a little naive, and they blamed bad weather for the complications. No, wasn't the complications. You were scamming people, you got in over your head, and you look like a fool ass, and now you're getting hit with a $100 million class action lawsuit. So listen up. As sweaty as I was, as tired as I was, as worn out as my ass was, during the NFL draft, I would go through that 1,000 times. I would go through that, the lack of sleep, just running all over the place, my sore feet, everything. Give me that 1,000 damn times before I ever fell for something like the Fire Festival. Coming up after this break, though, we've had our fun. It's time to get serious. The city of Boston made an ass out of itself once again this week. And for the first time in a long time, we're having a very serious dialogue about the racist behavior that comes out of that city, and we also address a little minor issue known as the black problem in Major League Baseball. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is episode 39 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. Check,
1: check, check, check it out.
3: This is JSC Radio. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
0: Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right. Stitcher is radio on demand. Now, you can download the free app today, and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kindle Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million card dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. If you don't have the Stitcher app, simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio, be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio.
4: Well, I mean, I think what I'm speaking of is is the reality. Um, you look around in baseball, and if, if you see what you see, and I don't know whose eyes uh, uh, other people, what they see, but what, through my eyes, I see the majority of, of white players, and it's not it's not a problem. I don't. It's not like I'm saying, oh, we need more black players. We need to do this and do that. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, he asked me a question, and I answered it simply as that. And with the backing of it, knowing that the numbers uh, backed up my statement. And like I said, we play in such a, a, a numbers game, sabermetrics. Everything is always valued by numbers these days. So why, when I threw out a number, did I get backlash from it? I'm just just speaking the truth. And you know, I even educated myself. I had no idea that the that the number of Latins rose to 28 percent. I educated myself. I thought it was in the lower 20s. So all this can be is a conversation and education for everybody. So that's just what my stance was. And if uh, if people don't agree with it, you don't have to. But I think the support that I've received from my family, friends, and a lot of the uh, older guys, the older generation of baseball players has been great. And I'm happy with my my decision to speak up on it.
0: This is JSC Radio, episode 39 of the People's Podcast. Welcome back. J. Scott Smith here. Going two segments this week because, well, partially because I can. And secondarily, last week, of course, NFL Draft, as I talked about the first half of the show, kept us off of your airwaves and out of your ears and out of your computers. By the way, if you want to get us in your computers, once again, go to jscottsmith.com. Players right there as soon as you hit the page and you can listen to every episode of the show plus you can also subscribe on iTunes on Stitcher and on Google Play we're everywhere right now baby plus plus soundcloud.com slash JSC radio and you can follow the show on Twitter at JSC radio you can follow me on Twitter at J Smith where I am verified I'm on Instagram too at J Smith and I'm even on Snapchat at J. Scott Smith. So no matter where you go, it's J. Scott Smith. So um, yeah, needed a moment to transition from the silliness and frivolity of the uh, the first half of this show to get to the meat of the issue here. You just heard from Adam Jones, and that was from last fall. And I mentioned last fall that Adam Jones was one of the guys who spoke up. During the whole kerfluffle over Colin Kaepernick, who, by the way, is still not signed. He's a free agent. He's still not been signed by anybody. Adam Jones made the, what was at least controversial to some people, comments that baseball is a white man's game. People, certain people, were taken aback by this. Not anybody who follows baseball was taken aback by this, but, you know, A lot of people who like to have their head in the sand were taken aback by this. To keep pushing forward here, we go into this season, this 2017 Major League Baseball season. Tigers are kind of middling, middle of the pack. The American League Central is a jumbled mess, but we're not talking about standings. What we're talking about here is what went on in Boston earlier this week. The Red Sox and the Orioles have this thing. They've got this issue. They they don't really care much for each other anyway. They're division rivals. So there's always going to be a little bit of heat between the two. And Dustin Pedroia gets hurt when Manny Machado slides into him. The, the Red Sox are salty about this. And ever since then, they've basically spent all their time trying to hit Manny Machado. Trying to get... Manny Machado back for this slide that even Pedroia himself has since gotten over. Well, this is the first time the O's have been in Boston this year. And it was earlier this week. And it was after the silliness in Baltimore where one of the pitchers threw at Machado's head, which is a major no-no in baseball. So now we're in Boston. They've got this beef with the Red Sox. But this whole game, I mean, it's bad enough that Manny Machado was walking around with a bullseye on him, basically. But we're not talking about Manny Machado here. We're talking about Adam Jones. And after the game on Monday, Jones was telling reporters about just a wonderful evening he had at Fenway Park. Which included being in the outfield and getting peppered with racial slurs by Red Sox fans. And then as he's heading back into the dugout, a Red Sox fan is yelling more derogatory things at him and then throws a bag of peanuts at the man. Seriously. This is this is this is what this is this is what we're doing in 2017. Jones straight up laid it out there. He was getting harassed and pelted with racial slurs. And having peanuts thrown at him. My friend at the Associated Press, Aaron Wack, wrote about this. And I'll get more into it because this is something that touches a raw nerve with me. When it comes to baseball, the game I grew up loving. Baseball, the game that I often, unfortunately, feel at times doesn't love us back as much as it should. To have this happen in a place like Boston doesn't shock people, not in the least. Fenway has been like that for years. The Boston Garden was like that for years. The streets of Boston are still like that. And people can take exception And they can take umbrage and they can do what a lot of them did after, oh, that's not us, that's not Boston. Yes, it is. It always has been and it always will be until you do something to change it because it's disgraceful. There ain't too many other ways to put this to be perfectly honest with you. Because if you look at the history of the city of Boston and how they treat people, there's a reason why. Al Horford signing with the Boston Celtics was such a big deal because it's a rare occurrence that a major black athlete, a major black free agent, actually signs with the Celtics. Take a look back at some of the all-time great players the Boston Celtics have had. And I'm going to say the great black players. Ironically, the Celtics were the first NBA team to draft a black player which is interesting enough. Bill Russell was drafted by them. Robert Parrish got there via trade. Players like Tiny Archibald and Dennis Johnson. Trades. Kevin Garnett. Ray Allen. Trades. Paul Pierce. Draft. Rajon Rondo. Draft. Before he died, Len Bias. Antoine Walker was drafted. Chauncey Billups was drafted. These are all draft picks. I had to think about that. Ain't no black free agents just signing in Boston, which is crazy because the Celtics have all that history, but they also have the history of being racist. But that's just how it is, and you have to learn to deal with it because, honestly, Boston is regarded by people of color much in the same way the South is. Its racism is not much of a secret. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, but there's racists in every city. I'm not saying there aren't. We're talking about you though. Are there racists in every major US city? Sure, there are. But does one major US city let their racist flag fly as often and consistently as Boston? No. And yes, I'm even counting cities in the South. What happened to Adam Jones is the type of shit you read about happening to black players in the 1940s and the 1950s. In the South. When you read those stories about Jackie Robinson and the things he had to put up with when he was on the road, like the only thing missing from some of these stories would be the Orioles being denied hotel rooms because they had black players in Boston. And I'm sitting here in Philadelphia, the site of maybe the biggest indignity that Jackie Robinson had to deal with, having to go out in Philadelphia to take a picture and shake hands with Ben Chapman the racist manager of the Phillies in 1947. This is after a series they had in Brooklyn where Chapman is screaming all kinds of racial slurs and disgusting things and saying that Jackie's Dodger teammates were going to get sores and, and, and blisters from sharing towels with him. Talking about the size of his skull and of his brain. Saying he was like an animal one indignity after the other, and then he comes here to Philadelphia and he has to take a picture and shake this man's hand even though he wanted to bash his head in with the baseball bat. I'm not sitting here making this up. This is what it used to be like 70 years ago. But apparently in Boston, this has always been the thing. Because this is just the latest. Jones said that this wasn't the first time he's had to deal with that. He deals with it all the time in Boston. It's not just Adam Jones. C.C. Sabathia talked about it from the New York Yankees, and obviously he played in Cleveland before that. Sabathia told Eric Bolin of New York Newsday that he experienced what Jones did in Boston, though not as much since he's been with the Yankees because of their security detail. Sabathia also dropped this unfortunate money quote. I've never been called that word anywhere but in Boston. And Sabathia said that among black major leaguers, they all talk about it. There's 62 of us. We all know when you go to Boston, you expect it. I'll get to that 62 number in a second. Sabathia is far from the only one. Washington manager Dusty Baker, whose playing career took him through the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s, when it was still show enough racist on the road Said, quote, it doesn't surprise me too much. Shows you how much further we got to go. Dusty Baker is now the manager of the Washington Nationals. One of only two black managers in Major League Baseball, by the way. It doesn't get any, and you know what the thing about this is? Because it infuriates me. If you can't tell, I'm a little, I'm a little bothered by this. Here's the thing that really bugged me. It's not just Red Sox opponents. David Price high-profile free agent, inexplicably signed in Boston. He told the Boston Globe in January that he heard racial slurs being yelled at him by Red Sox fans in the Boston bullpen at Fenway last year. Quote, I got it all. It's all right. I don't care about that. My mom is white and my dad is black, and I've heard that since I've been in school. There's nothing you can say to me that I haven't heard before. Your ignorance is not going to affect what I'm trying to do, but I feel sad it's still out there. Former Red Sox player Carl Crawford had racial slurs yelled at him by a a police officer in the damn stadium while playing in Boston. People in Boston have the nerve to get offended when we call them out for being racist. They try to deflect. They try to go out of their way to say, oh, that's not who we are, that's not us. Things like this happen all the time there. And please understand that it ain't just a baseball thing. Fenway is just maybe the most notorious. One of the stories I covered when I was still working for the Griot and working for NBC in 2012 came after the Washington Capitals knocked out the Boston Bruins from the, from the Stanley Cup playoffs. The guy who scored the goal in Game 7 that put Boston to sleep was Joel Ward. Joel Ward is black. He's Canadian, but he's black. And it's almost as if as soon as he scores the goal, anybody with a Bruins jersey, a Bruins hat, a Boston hat, couldn't get on Twitter fast enough to start hurtling racial slurs at him. Couldn't wait to just start peppering him with N-words and every other disgusting racial slur you can think of. Michael Che from Saturday Night Live prior to the Super Bowl said Boston is the most racist city he's ever been to. I'm leery about going to Boston. I've only been to Boston once. I've got two really good friends who live out there. One is in Boston and the other one goes to UMass. I went out there once for a convention. It was, what was it, 2013. It's 2013 I was in Boston. It's a city that you just look at it. It's like you would think in the in the liberal Northeast, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna come at liberals a little bit here too. And I rarely do that, clearly. But in the very liberal Northeast, you would think that things like this wouldn't go on. But Boston seems to carry that mantle. They've unfortunately Bill Russell, who's on the Mount Rushmore of Boston sports. If you look at Boston sports, there's Bill Russell, there's Larry Bird, there's Ted Williams, and there's Tom Brady. That's your Mount Rushmore of Boston sports. Bill Russell is responsible for 11 of the 17 NBA titles that the Celtics have in one form or fashion. He's responsible for 11 of them. He hated Boston for decades because of the same treatment that Adam Jones got the other night at Fenway, Bill Russell had to put up with that at home. At home! As the Celtics are racking up championships, he's putting up with that nonsense. I'm sure Jim Rice heard some wonderful things in Boston. I'm sure Don Baylor had to deal with some wonderful things during the 1980s. Patriot players, I'm sure, have gotten it throughout the years. A number of black Celtics players have surely gotten it throughout the years. I've been to Boston. It's like a smaller version of Philadelphia in terms of its history. And I'm a nerd. I love that historical shit that Boston has. But I'm so leery of going out there. I got to go to Fenway a couple of years ago because I'm a baseball junkie. And just because I didn't hear any racial slurs hurled in my direction doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I'm going to take a pretty good guess that somebody was getting called a racial slur while I was there. It's shameful. And Adam Jones stood up and said what everybody else was thinking. And David Price has said the same thing, and Sabathia has said the same thing, and I can guarantee you I could get Dexter Fowler to tell me the same thing. I could get Jason Hayward to talk about the same thing. I'm sure Ken Griffey Jr.'s got some stories. Pretty much any black New York Yankee can give you all kinds of stories other than just CC Sabathia. It's disgraceful, and I'm going to keep using that word. For years and years and years... We don't care much for Boston in the black community. If you go back to the Showtime Lakers versus Bird Celtics, again, we're keeping it real. A lot of that was along racial lines, too. There was a reason why, growing up in Detroit, that a lot of us, despite despising the Lakers, we would rather root for the Lakers than the Celtics. And you know why. It ain't just because they beat the Pistons. Boston, you have to wear this. Don't Come in here with these weak-ass denials or everybody does it. Yeah, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you do the same? Or it's not as bad or really don't be like Albert Breer and demand proof. When a black person, really when multiple black people say that they've been accosted with racial slurs, there's pictures of the goober throwing peanuts at Adam Jones, demanding proof from a black person or any person of color, who says that they have been racially discriminated against or racially harassed, that's on par with a woman saying I was sexually assaulted and you demand proof. It's asinine. Yes, you're wrong for demanding proof. If multiple people say it and it's not some brand new thing in in Boston, I'm 37 years old. I've been hearing about how racist Boston was for about 33, 34 years. And the only reason I didn't hear about it longer is because I don't recall anything from 1980 or 1981. Boston has been heralded as being a not-so-nice place to be if you're a person of color for a long time. You gotta wear that. The Red Sox did do the right thing by apologizing to Jones. The mayor of Boston apologized to Jones. The governor... Of Massachusetts Charlie Baker apologized to Adam Jones the Red Sox fans the following night gave him a standing ovation the Red Sox staff apparently threw out a guy who was screaming racial slurs at a black woman who was singing the national anthem the national by God anthem what's wrong with you I'm up here in the Northeast I'm in Philadelphia which carried the shame of how they treated, of how the Phillies treated Jackie Robinson for almost 70 years. We hear that. It's palpable. It is one of the great shames of Philadelphia. It took them 70 years to admit it. How long is it going to take Boston to acknowledge that they got a problem? And no amount of whining or finger-pointing at other cities or demanding hard concrete proof is going to change that you got to own this. Major League Baseball's got a problem in and of itself because 7.1% of Major League players on opening day rosters were black. 7.1%. This is 2017. I shouldn't be talking about the lone black guy on an MLB roster. I wouldn't want to be Justin Upton being the only black guy in the Tiger Clubhouse. Or if you're like the San Diego Padres and Colorado Rockies, who've got Latin players but no black players. Even crazier is that the Red Sox are the rare team that fields multiple black players. Two of them in that outfield were those same dirtbag Red Sox fans who were screaming racial slurs at Adam Jones and likely guys like Manny Machado because, hey, haters gonna hate And they don't discriminate when it comes to discrimination. Those same people screaming racial slurs at Adam Jones are the same ones cheering on Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley and probably yelling racial slurs at them if they commit an error or if they screw up in the outfield. 62 black players out of 868 total in the majors. That's disgraceful. I talked to Bob McClure, who heads the Negro League Museum a few years ago out in Kansas City. And he told me that part of the reason that Major League Baseball is running into this issue is not just because the sport is, quote, boring. I will always call bullshit whenever someone tells me baseball is boring. You can you can sit through an entire soccer match but have the nerve to tell me that a baseball game is boring? Stop it. It's not just because this whole ridiculous notion that baseball is boring. A lot of the issues with blacks in baseball, where at one point, back in the 1970s, More than a quarter of the league was black. In the 80s, it was still about 20, 25 percent black players. Every team had black players, discernible black players. For me, it was Chet Lemon and Lou Whitaker and Larry Herndon for my Detroit Tigers. At other places, it's Ricky Henderson or Dave Stewart or Dave Henderson or Ken Griffey Jr. or Ken Griffey Sr. or Dave Winfield. Barry Bonds later on down the line. Bobby Bonilla. Deion Sanders, major league player. I already mentioned Jim Rice and Don Baylor. I mean, we can go up and down the list. Dave Parker, Cecil Cooper. You want to get really silly? Go with like UL Washington. Talking about those Kansas City Royals of the 1980s. Just rattling them off. Cecil Fielder beforehand. George Bell is another one. Andre Dawson is another one. You can name black players. And obviously, the late Tony Gwynn, Ozzie Smith, Hall of Famers, Legends. We had them. But what changed is not just simply that the game is suddenly boring. Because it was pretty damn exciting back then. What's changed is accessibility. Because baseball is Pretty much the second most expensive travel sport to play outside of hockey. You're dealing with uniforms, bats, balls, gloves, batting gloves, wristbands. If you're a catcher, you're adding a mask and chest protector and shin guards, knee pads. Specialized gloves for first basemen and catchers. I have a first base mitt on me at all times. I'm always ready to go. I grew up loving and playing baseball. But part of the reason the game itself has lost a lot of steam is that we, a lot of times, can't afford to play it. You just don't have black travel teams like you have for basketball or for football. Pal League Baseball ain't popping in Detroit like Pal League Football is. AAU Baseball ain't popping in the streets the way AAU Basketball is. It's about making the game accessible. That's what made the Monet Davis story out here in Philadelphia such a big deal. It wasn't just the fact that it was a young black woman out here schooling these dudes. That was a largely all-black team from right here in Philly getting it done. Ryan Howard, who used to play for the Phillies, opened up a baseball academy for young black and brown youth here in Philadelphia late last year. It's part of the RBI program. I give Major League Baseball credit for this because they at least are trying to address the problem, but it's hard to drum up interest because of the expense. It's tough to keep up with that. It costs money to get uniforms. It costs money to get catcher's gear. It costs money to get bats and balls and gloves and training and time. And a lot of the facilities and a lot of the fields aren't up to standard. You see a baseball diamond in a suburb. I'll go back to Michigan with this. You go to Troy, Michigan, or Rochester Hills. You go out to Washtenaw County, you go to Ann Arbor. You go up to, if you go up to Lansing, for example, you go out to Grand Ledge, places like that. Out in West Michigan, spots like that. The baseball diamonds are manicured, they have dirt on the infield. All the bases are there. Hell, you go to Southfield, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. There's a whole complex full of baseball diamonds out there. They have bases fields. They have actual walls, foul lines, batter's boxes, dugouts, backstops, the whole thing. If you go 10 minutes over into Detroit, all you really got is a field covered in gravel and grass. There ain't no outfield wall. In fact, there might be a football go post depending on where you are because they're just putting it on a football field. I love the game of baseball. I would just love it more if it reflected me. Eventually, I'm going to have a kid. And I've maintained over and over again. And me and my, my homies talk about this. My frat brother, Kevin, former baseball player himself, we talk about this. If I ever have a kid, I'm putting a glove in that in that kid's crib. Especially if he somehow turns out left-handed, I'm gonna make sure I teach his ass how to pitch. Because you make all kinds of money and take a third of the wear and tear that a football player takes playing baseball. And the money's guaranteed. is a beautiful sport. It's a beautiful game. And you don't need it to be tarnished. I shouldn't be gobsmacked at 7.1% of the league being black. There have to be more inroads made. RBI programs are in Philadelphia and Cincinnati and Houston and New York and Chicago. But there need to be more. There needs to be one in every major league city. Why isn't there one in Detroit? I know there's one in Los Angeles. Why isn't there one in Detroit? Why isn't there one... In Kansas City. Every city should have one of these. Every major metropolitan city. Every urban center should have one. Get more black players on that field. Get more black players in management. In ownership. Dave Roberts and Dusty Baker should not be the only black managers in Major League Baseball in 2017. Let's do better. And Boston, you really need to do better. You need to do some soul-searching and look in the mirror. Because a major metropolitan area, a major U.S. city in the Northeast, should not be blithely regarded as abjectly racist in 2017. And you really can't defend yourself against it. So start to fix the problem. Do better, Boston. Do better for yourself and do better for the game. My name is J. Scott Smith, telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pet spayed or neuter. And we are out of here. Another milestone next week as we get on episode 40 of the People's Podcast. And I'm coming from my alma mater. You've been warned. Good night, everybody. Thanks for coming out. God bless you. Good
1: night. Check it out.
0: This is JSC Radio. I
1: heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded.
0: I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand.
3: I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.